Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Liz Lenevy, and today I am joined by Amy Gunn, Erica Slater, and Elizabeth McNulty. And today's episode is about closing arguments. So if you have been listening for a while, you may notice that we try to alternate our episodes between just general, professional, life skills, and what we call hard skills episode. And and that's what today's is. It's about how to give a good and memorable and effective closing argument. So the very first question I wrote down for myself is, what is a closing argument? Because I've been told by a couple of listeners that they aren't attorneys, but they're interested in these types of episodes just to learn more about the law. So for anyone who isn't familiar, a closing argument is the last stage of a trial before jury deliberations. It is that moment where the attorneys get to stand up in front of the jury and argue their case one last time. If you watch any court movie or attorney movie, it's always one of the culminating scenes. If you think of Philadelphia or Amistad or whatever, it's always one of the last scenes where the attorney gets to get up there and make some impassioned argument to sway the jury to you know make the right decision. That is not often how real life trial work goes though, and I've been told this since law school. By the time closing arguments roll around, the jury has really already made up their mind. They know who they believe and who they want to find for in their verdict. And so that sort of begs the question for me is, you know, what is the point of a closing argument? If the jury has already made up their mind, what is the point of taking another hour or two to walk back through the evidence and give that last argument? And so, Amy, I'm going to pitch this question to you. You know, what is the point of a closing argument, and what is your objective with the closing? The point is to get the jurors who you have convinced up to that time to fight for you in the jury room. You have to enable the jurors, your jurors, you have to teach those folks how to go into the deliberation room and fight for your client and fight for the outcome that they want, that they believe is just based on the information that they've had. The best way I have found to do that is to encourage them to speak their minds, not to be shy. You are rendering judgment in this case as a group. Fight about it. Talk about it. I want to set a scene where there's raucous debate in that jury room and that everyone has an opportunity to be heard. You are taking a gamble that some of that raucous debate will be for your client. And if you're a little bit of a shy person, when you go in that room, you may not say things. And sometimes the shy people are for you and you're taking a a bet that the shy folks maybe are your jurors. You gotta teach them how to go in there and fight. And sometimes I say, I'm a fighter. You've noticed this entire trial. What you didn't see is for the last two years, Liz and I have been fighting for this client. And 
we take that very seriously. And we are giving over our fight now to you to carry it on. So you have to really give them that spirit to go in there. Now that they're all you know, riled up and imbued with this spirit to go fight, how do you give them tools to make that fight? So the next step is to show them the law, the jury instructions. If you do a closing argument without referring to the jury instructions, I can't help you. I cannot help you. In Missouri, the judge reads the jury instructions right before closing argument. So judge reads it and then says, Ms. Gunn, you may proceed. I have a PowerPoint ready with the instructions that the jury has just heard. Because up to that point, they haven't seen it. They just hear these words. And like a lot of things, people are visual learners. They just hear words that may or may not make sense out of context. You have to put it in context. So I put up what we call the verdict director. This directs your verdict. If you find this, then that. And you read it out, and I check it off when I say, you must find for the plaintiff if you believe the defendant cut the wrong artery or whatever. And then I say, here's all the reasons why that was done, and I put a big check mark on it. And then you believe that that cutting the artery caused or contributed caused harm. You talk about that check mark. And then you go to damages and check that. So you walk through the definition of negligence. That is the law. And they ta- you, you define negligence, and then you put that up, and then you explain all the reasons why the actions were negligent. And then one of my very favorite is the damages. And it says, you know, basically, if you believe for the plaintiff, you must compensate that plaintiff fairly and justly, or words to that effect. But I highlight, circle, star the word must. Folks, if you believe these things, that this was an error and it caused harm, you must. The judge tells you you have to you have to compensate justly and fairly. You can't do it at a discount. You can't do it as a compromise. If you believe things, they must be compensated justly. And if you put up all those jury instructions, your time is going to be up. So everyone thinks about, oh, clothes, it's so hard, it's so hard. No, it is not. It can be formulaic and yet incredibly effective because you can say all the things with passion, and I'm real strong about that. Like, this is your show, folks. If you can't put on a show in closing argument, I don't know. That's the fun part. Well, cross-exam too, but certainly in, in close. You've got to follow those instructions because if they get back there and they're reading words on a page that no one has taught them how to apply to the facts of your case, anything could happen. And I do it in a way where you gently encourage them that if you don't follow this, it's a problem. (laughs) Like This is the law. You've sworn to follow it. Here's how the facts apply to this. So I think the goals are to teach your jurors how to fight and give them the tools to do it. And Amy, you referenced how it can be very formulaic, although you can certainly add your own flair, and you should, to it. But a question I often get asked by law students who are watching trial is, when do you, when do you write this? 
when do you prepare your closing argument? Is it the night before? Or do you have that thing in the can ready to go? So Erica, when do you start preparing for your clothes? Well, about a week before trial, I go shopping and pick out my heels that I'm going to wear on the last day of trial. <laughs> okay, so so that's true. <laughs> I call my work boots. I save my best pair of heels for closing <laughs> that make me feel ultra confident because that's really when, and Amy's right, that's really when you get the opportunity and the license, if you will, to really put on a show. The best thing about closing is that you know your case so well by the time you get to closing, not just because you've lived it for two years, but then the like very focused study of trying a case and hearing that evidence as it actually came out. I mean, that is when I feel most powerful to talk about the case. So it is very hard to try to write a closing, which I'm not even sure you should write a closing. I mean, if you really think about it in the way that Amy described, and I agree 110%, if you use the instructions as your guide and you go through them with the jury, you will naturally be able to fill in the evidence that you want to highlight that you are arming your jurors with, for lack of a better phrase. So as far as working on it, there's a couple things I do beforehand, one thing I do during trial, and then Really, I'm finalizing a PowerPoint or whatever the night before. Like, the night before is a 1 a.m. in the office type of thing. Your adrenaline's so high. You're really geared up for it. Honestly, since the beginning of a case, when we start taking depositions, um, and this is a trick I learned from Amy and John, I start thinking about or creating, whether it's through memos or I finally get to setting up a formal kind of table in Issues Digest. So we look at every single issue, which I think of as the questions we need to answer in the case and the questions that are coming into our juror's mind. And we list all of our evidence that supports our theory in our answer to those questions. And that's how you formulate an Issues Digest. And that, just the act of creating that, really helps you learn your case. And really, that's your cheat sheet for developing your closing argument and highlighting the evidence that you are going to highlight to the jury. So that's what I do kind of prior to trial that I use as a tool loosely for closing. The other thing I do during trial is I have a trial binder that has all my key documents or records or depositions or whatever. I try to keep it as small as I can, but I do put blank pages in the back of that. And all throughout trial, I'm writing down snippets or thoughts about closing each day. Because you're going to have these brilliant ideas about what you want to say in closing throughout the trial. You're going to scrap 70% of it, but you've noted it for yourself and won't have to sit there and be like, oh, what was that great phrase from, you know, day two that I want to, you know, use as a sound bite. So that's another tool I use to help me prepare the closing. And then it really comes down to the night before, maybe two nights before, if you don't have anything to do on the day before closing, you can kind of start working on that. But hopefully you and or your team have kind of put together the rough clips of a PowerPoint that you might want to use, meaning actually put up the text of the jury instructions. So 
Erica, your point about writing things down throughout the trial to use as a soundbite at the end, that is a trick I've definitely watched Amy use. I've seen Amy actually go up to the court reporter and say, can I get a copy of today's transcript? Because there were some good lines in there. And then in the close, read whatever that line from the transcript is. I have one story where it was a premise liability case where our client had been injured on a defective product. And the problem for this defendant was that another person had been injured in the exact same way about a year prior on that exact same product, very similar injuries. But in this particular instance, my client had used the product once safely, had then used the product a second time, and that's when she got hurt. And the defense attorney, when he was cross-examining her, he made a comment about, well, you know, Miss So-and-so, the definition of crazy, well, we say the definition of crazy is is doing the same thing twice and, and expecting a different outcome. So if you use this product safely both times, how in the world did you get a different outcome the second time? And it was a dumb argument, but I loved the quote of the definition of crazy is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different outcome. And I wrote that down. It's not even the quote. It's not the quote. It's but Einstein. It's the definition of insanity. Exactly. And I'll tell Good. you, I went back and I looked through the trial transcript and I looked up the word insanity the first time because that is the proper quote and he didn't use it. He used the word crazy. <laughs> so that's why I'm doing this now. I like the clarification <laughs> that like I'm getting his quote right, which was totally wrong. Correct. But I wrote down his incorrect quoting of Einstein. And I used it in my clothes because I just thought it was it was a gift of a quote. And I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Mr. So-and-so just told you the definition of crazy is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different result where this company was told that this product caused this injury. They did nothing to fix it and then somehow expected a different outcome. Boom. He thinks it's crazy. I call it negligent. Boom. And <laughs> they started, they stood up and started clapping for you. God, I wish, I wish. My ego would have exploded that day. But I thought it was you a very clever. You would have had to quit practicing if yeah. a jury claps for you. In closing. It's hanging out any better than that. <laughs> but I thought it was clever. And if the opposing counsel or if one of their witnesses gives you just an absolute gift of a quote, write that down immediately and work it into your clothes because that is a memorable moment. And it's just, you know. Just fun. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) So, Erica, you had said, and I think, Amy, you may have alluded to it as well, that your clothes is not something you should really write down and have a script for. I will say I did once watch in a trial, and it was not anyone from our firm. And I feel very confident that this particular attorney does not listen to this podcast. So I feel comfortable saying this story. But this attorney got up in front of the jury, stood behind a podium, opened up his binder, and read from his script as if he was reading sermon. I mean, it was awful. It was awful. But there is the argument that having some sort of outline or something prepared so that you know what are the major points that you want to be sure that you hit, I think there is something to be said to to having that. And so, Elizabeth, how would you advise our listeners on threading that, that needle between reading from your script but also not going in there and just winging it? Yeah, I think it's a fine line. And I would think as someone who's never done it before, 
and being maybe a little bit nervous about having to do that. I would write it out once at least, but I would never like bring that up there. I think that you probably would get it to a point where you could do it without something. But I think that an outline is probably fairly useful for less experienced attorneys. But I think it also goes back to having a PowerPoint would probably be enough of an outline to have there. Another thing, if you kind of just go up there and wing it, you're you're being timed. So you might not get in all of your points if you're just kind of going up there and talking. And a lot of people might get nervous. So you just start rambling. And then you, I think that you kind of lose jurors. And I have seen quite a few closing arguments. I think they're really fun to go watch. One thing I have seen attorneys just get up, stand in front of the jury box and talk for 30 minutes. And This could just be my being weird or like being an attorney, just envisioning myself giving a close. But I always just think, wow, that guy just memorized all that stuff. How is he doing that? And I am not listening to a single word that he's actually saying about the case. I'm just so distracted by the fact that he's just talking and has all this stuff memorized. So I don't know if normal, you know, jurors would think that, but I always find it to be kind of distracting to just go up there and talk for 30 minutes. So I don't know. I think that you need something. A PowerPoint gives there's something to look at other than you and kind of can put things more in context for them. But I do think that they do take a lot longer to craft. Elizabeth alluded to, you know, the fact we were going to talk about PowerPoints a little bit later. But at this point, Amy has mentioned it in her answer. Erica's mentioned it in her answer. And now, Elizabeth, you've mentioned it. So I think it's a good time to address it. The use of PowerPoints and other technology in your closing. So Erica, what are your thoughts on the use of technology in a closing argument? A previous episode in season one where we talked about opening statements, we were discussed the same thing and our answers are very different. So I think a PowerPoint and visuals in your closing are absolutely necessary for so many reasons, one of which Elizabeth just pointed out that you don't just wanna talk at the jury for a half hour. I mean, you want to give them something to refresh their memory and, you know, show them the evidence again, especially the evidence that highlights why you win. The other thing that's very important about using visuals in a PowerPoint is that you're talking to, you know, six, nine, 12 people, depending on the size of your jury, and all those people learn differently. So not everyone is an audio learner. People are visual learners. Some people are tactile learners. And you really want to present your evidence in different ways so it reaches different people. So you can't just think about the way you learn. And also using the actual evidence or the actual clip of a piece of transcript or the actual text or PDF of the jury instruction I think is really important because I like showing the jury like the original documents. So I don't often retype testimony or retype the jury instructions onto a PowerPoint. I like to clip an actual picture of the actual document that they're going to be looking at. So it's the same text, the same wording, the same line breaks. So it's familiar. So they're seeing it for a second time in the jury room. Those are my uh, high-level technology tips. I've even seen in closing argument where people have 
taken clips of video depositions. Oh, I love that. And placed it into their PowerPoint. So you're still being guided by the visual component of your clothes, but it's a quick and seamless way. And the jury gets to see that crucial piece of testimony a second time. And it's within the context of you getting to make that final argument. So you're not having to fight with opposing counsel about, you know, what may or may not get to come in. And it can be done so well. It needs Mm -hmm. to be like the answer to one question. You don't want to play three minutes of a video clip. But if you have a couple of those vignettes that just prove your point and make you look like the most trustworthy person in the room because you are re-showing them exactly what you told them you were going to show them, what they actually saw in testimony, and then saying, see, we told you we would prove this. Here's the evidence. It can be done so effectively. It just takes a little bit of work and coordination. Yeah. And I think the closing with a PowerPoint as well, you can put up timelines really well. Sure. Even if it's not a PowerPoint. I, I think, Amy, I've seen you throw up timelines for the jury because there is so much evidence swirling around and sometimes evidence doesn't necessarily come in chronologically. And so it's an important opportunity for you to then explain to the jury, this is all the evidence we've shown you. Let me show you from point A to point Z of how we got here today and everything that happened in this case that led to this moment where you all are going to now take all of this evidence and make your verdict. So another really important aspect of closing argument is to remember that the other side gets to also make a closing argument. And part of your job is to anticipate those arguments and how to mitigate whatever bad facts that they are going to highlight. So something that, Amy, I've heard you often say is you can't take the bait, can't take the bait. So what is the difference between anticipating bad facts and mitigating them and taking the bait? When you do your close and you're like, I just nailed that, there's the law, they're all good, and then defendant gets up or defense attorney gets up and it's as if you've been in two different trials for the last week and a half. Part of that makes you want to jump up and say, what he just said is, you know, fill in the blank. And you can't do that because that's exactly what part of the point, I think, of the defense attorney sometimes stepping out of what the actual facts of are of the case is to throw your rebuttal off. But your rebuttal is your last opportunity to talk to these folks, and you can appeal to them. And if you allow yourself to get distracted by saying, nah, not what he said, then you're losing that golden opportunity. Now, that said, if there are out-and-out lies by the defense attorney, you got to call them out. And the good news is, is they don't get to come back up and say, no, not what she said. So if there's a really bad misrepresentation of the facts of the case or the evidence that came in, I think you got to call them out. And yeah, I think you do it strongly, maybe even point. (laughs) (laughs) But on my rebuttal, you got to go back to damages and you have to explain how this injury, loss, whatever, has forever altered this person's life and the family's life. Because I want those folks walking out of there just feeling it, feeling it. One of the hardest things that we do is put the jury in the shoes of our client. 
And we can't say, imagine if you were this person, this golden rule crap that we can't talk about. It's tough, darn near impossible to teach empathy. Our world lacks empathy, and it's no different talking to jurors. If you can't spend that last five or ten minutes creating, pulling out, imbuing, whatever, these folks with some kind of feeling for your client and ask them to, without saying it, be in their shoes and to feel what they've gone through, then you've kind of missed an opportunity for those last five minutes. Because honestly, you're not talking about the facts anymore. You're just appealing to their nature as a human being and to their power for righting a wrong. And so I kind of try to focus on those few things and not take the bait of responding to whatever nonsense, in my opinion, the defense attorney has just thrown up. Again, if it's really bad, then you just kind of point. And sometimes I say, y'all know that's not right. Y'all just heard that. And you know, I'm not going to go over it again because you've heard it a hundred times. You all wrote it down. Read your notes. You know, you know, that's not right. What I want to talk about is blah, blah, blah. So you kind of just shame them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then at the very end, it's just, again, we've been fighting for, insert the blanks, months, years. We've been fighting, and now it's your turn. There's nothing else I get to say. My job is not done, but I've done all I can do. And now it's your turn. Go back there and fight. You know, you got to get pumped up. You want people in there pumped up and talking and then talk about damages and talk about how powerful they are and thank them. Thank them for fighting. My favorite example of watching an attorney not take the bait was actually in a case that Elizabeth worked on a couple years ago. John Simon was trying a case with one of our teams and John was doing closing. And the attorney on the other side, it was a two-week med mal case, involved a minor. You guys might have all been there to see this. It was just, oh, man, it's awesome. The other attorney, the defense attorney, finished his closing, and he said to the jury, as the last thing he's going to speak to them, he's like, now John Simon has a chance to get back up here and talk to you, and the walls are going to shake, and the windows are going to rattle, And, you know, he's going to get real hot under the collar and tell you why you need to fine for his client. But I have no idea what he said after that. But, of course, that was a perfect bait. It was meant to shame John into changing his style. It was meant to make him react. It was meant to throw him off. It was meant to change his game. And he got up there. And the windows rattled and the <laughs> ceiling blew off. And, and it was so genuine. And it wasn't John fulfilling that prophecy. It wasn't him overplaying his hand. He was talking about an extremely serious case with a senseless error that affected a six-year-old girl. If there's not something more important than that, to get upset about, give me a break. It's like it was never said. He just went on and did his thing. And I was like moved by giving it no acknowledgement. 
he made that attorney look so foolish. Yeah. And it was just, it was great. So if you need an example of not taking the bait, that's it. And it can completely turn it around to just <laughs> not even acknowledge what they said. And quite frankly, he fulfilled a promise. <laughs> and Erica, I watched that close. Yeah. I was there. And to be frank, I forgot that opposing counsel said that. I remember John's rebuttal. I remember that oh, very clearly. But It was amazing. I, right. I, I had completely forgotten that that was the line that he used right before John got up. So I guess that sort of proves your point about, you know, what is a jury going to remember? Well, and and then we should cap that with the jury came out with a eight-figure verdict, so in our favor. So I think they were on our side. Just goes to show you, a little bit of passion goes a long way. Indeed. So before we started recording today, I just was perusing Google and came across a couple articles about the do's and don'ts of closing, just in case there was something that I could add into you know today's discussion. And I found this one article that talked about don'ts. And two of the don'ts that stood out to me are, one, don't object too much. And then the second was, don't get too personal. And so Elizabeth, I'm going to throw this question to you. I wanted to know your thoughts on these two don'ts about objecting, over-objecting, and then getting too personal with the close. Well, I think that objections during close should only be used if something really egregious is happening or if you need and you need to preserve that for appeal. I don't think that it's, you know, necessary to do often. The other thing, getting too personal, I think that I've, I've seen it uh, happen where a defense attorney during his close just started personally attacking the lawyer in our office. And I think it just really crosses a line. It isn't professional. And as a juror, it would leave a really bad taste in my mouth, even if I, you know, thought that I was going to find for his side. I just think that that's just not the time and place to disparage another professional. Be careful about objecting during close. Most of the time, it'll be overruled. And then you just kind of look silly. I agree, Elizabeth, if you really need to preserve your record for something egregious, then you have to do it. But you know it when you see it. Typically, judges don't sustain objections during close because it's kind of an anything goes. So I would do it very sparingly. And getting personal, I was trying to think. I know it's happened to me. It's usually in the context of making me or our team look dishonest and not trustworthy. I think it backfires most of the time. We work really hard to be trustworthy because we know that those arguments come up in trial and we know that people expect lawyers not to be trustworthy. So I address it usually in opening or in voir dire about, you know, we're lawyers, what do you think about lawyers? And I say, we've tried really hard to bring you facts. Just We just bring in you the facts. I also think there's a lot of emotion in trials, and sometimes things slip out. But I don't take things personally, usually. If I could flip that personal issue, because I've seen this happen before, where it was... I believe it was a MedMal case. This was a number of years ago, but I was in the audience. And 
an attorney in our office was giving his close. It was a medical malpractice case where our client was a father, and he had a couple of small kids, and this particular injury had made him unable to fulfill what many perceive as you know parental duties and what many people enjoy about being a parent, being there for your child. And the attorney in our office had brought up the fact that he himself is a father. And defense counsel shot up and made some objection about, you know, this is not relevant, who who Mr. So-and-so, how many kids he has. And I can't remember if the court sustained the objection or not, or if the attorney in our office just sort of waved it off and said, judge, I'm going to move on. But I mean, in that scenario of trying to humanize yourself a little bit more, and maybe that's a strategy of trying to get the jury to humanize your client. I mean, is what is the line, I guess, on on bringing up the fact that you're a person too? I absolutely would have done that. I plan on doing that. I don't have any problem with that. If it's out of line, I guess the judge will tell me. I don't think that's a very good objection. I mean, I could see somebody making the objection, but my problem is not so much whether it's a legally sound objection, but whether what you look like to the jury that you're scared that jury knows that your opponent is a father. I mean, then all I would think about is that lawyer and oh, wonder what his family's like or her family's like. I think <laughs> I would maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why they wanted to be distracted by starting to think about that. But I would continue to do what that lawyer did as far as bringing it into a personal level to a certain extent. I remember my very first case I tried and in opening, I don't know if it's voir dire or opening, I remember saying, this is my very first trial. Uh, da, 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 da. I live here and I'm married to this person. And I mean, you know, because I didn't know anything and no one taught me anything <laughs> before I tried that case all by myself for the first time. Never second chaired anything. Just here you go, lady. And the lawyer did stand up at some point after I went on for a few minutes and was like, come on now. (laughs) And he wasn't being jerky about it. He was just, he had tried cases for 25 years and knew that that was probably a little much. The judge sustained it. But I didn't think twice about it because I thought, well, why can't the jury know a little bit about me? What is so wrong with knowing a little bit about me? I mean, we're going to spend time together. Why shouldn't you know about me? But yeah, I guess I went... Talking about the name of my cat probably would put him over the edge a little bit. <laughs> Sun Bun Gun wasn't with us oh, yet. No, it was Ellie. <laughs> Ellie Belly. Oh, boy. All right. So I saved the biggest question for last, and I unironically named this my million-dollar question because it is what I am asked by attorneys and by law students all the time is, In close, if you're the plaintiff, in close, when you are asking for damages, how do you know how much to ask for? And we're talking about cases where this isn't a property damage case where we can have someone come in and assess, you know, how much a car was worth or how much a building was worth. These are injury cases. And it's tough to put a dollar value on what someone's life was worth or what someone's injury, whether it's because they can no longer walk or because they have lost some other function that they needed, like eyesight or something. How do you put a dollar value on that? And so I'm going to give it to Amy. (laughs) How do you know how much to ask for in a close 
without shocking the jury and without, I, I hate to use this word, but without sounding greedy. Pro tip, you cannot first ask for a dollar amount in rebuttal. You have to actually ask for a dollar amount in your main clothes. So just keep that in mind. You'll be in trouble. Legally. Legally, that's a problem. Legally. <laughs> the other issue is you have to start conditioning the jury in voir dire. We have voir dire on damages, and, and you say something like, if you all believed that the defendant was negligent and caused harm, do you have any problem awarding millions of dollars? Even if you're not going to ask for millions of dollars, you've got to start talking about millions of dollars in voir dire. Two reasons, conditioning, and more importantly, people will raise their hand and be like, no way, it's just way too much. So you get them off for cause. Because remember, the jury instruction says you must be fair and just in your compensation. Must. So you start in voir dire, and then you get to close. If you have a med mal case, we have itemized damages. So you have non-economic past and future, economic past and future. So you have as many as four lines that you can put numbers in. And this is another PowerPoint, or sometimes you have to use the ELMO because you're actually writing numbers in on those lines. So for anyone who doesn't know, an ELMO is just a big projector. Overhead projector. <laughs> for the actual verdict form, which is what the jury signs and fills out. If you have evidence of those four categories, you can write in numbers. And for the economic loss, you're gonna have evidence of that, either economic, our medical bills or lost wages, past and future. So write that out. So that gets you to a number. The non-economic is what you're really asking about. And my thinking has evolved over the years. And currently, I'm becoming more and more comfortable with asking for millions of dollars for non-economic loss millions of dollars. I don't care if you have a lost eye, if you've got a hurt back, if you've lost a loved one, millions of dollars. I have seen research and talked to practitioners over the years. You don't get punished for that. The jury isn't going to be with you every step of the way, think your client's deserving, and then all of a sudden dump you because you asked for more money than they think you deserve. They're going to talk about it and they're going to compromise. If you think about it as a negotiation, because that's what they're doing, and the, uh, the jury's back there, not as much with economic because it is or it isn't. You've got a number or you don't. But non-economic, sky's the limit. And if the jury is comfortable with millions of dollars for a lost eye because they've been hearing it since voir dire, then it's not going to be that hard to fill that in at the end of the day. If the first time they've heard of millions of dollars is in close and you're, maybe you have economic loss that's not that substantial, that's going to be a, a little bit, I think they're going to be, what, where'd that come from? So it's conditioning. And in close, if you're going to ask for millions of dollars for non-economic, you got to give somebody an understanding of what that means. And you can't really do per diems. You know, that's another one of those stupid rules, in my opinion, that says, well, this person got injured when she was 30 years old and expected to live 50 years, then every day she should get this amount of money. I don't, honestly, I don't know why that's a bad thing, but it is, most states. 
But you can do things close to that that's not a technically a per diem. And what I like to do is talk about activities of daily living, depending on what the injury is. Can they do these things? What do we take for granted every day? Brushing my hair. If you don't have use of a limb or walk or loss of independence or whatever the injuries are, pain every day, pain every day for the rest of your life, and you just string it out in this long, long amount of time, and all of a sudden, millions of dollars doesn't really sound like that much. So I have evolved over this notion because I've learned that asking for millions of dollars isn't going to turn someone from a plaintiff juror to a defense juror. And most importantly, they're going to go back there and be comfortable with that kind of money and probably find something between something less than what you've asked for, but they're arguing about it. And it's another thing to negotiate. They're just negotiating. And you're going to come to a number that's reasonable and must fully, must fully justly compensate your client. And again, I keep talking about that today because I keep talking about in close. You must fully, not halfway, not a quarter. You can't buy the cheap equipment for a life care plan and fully compensate the plaintiff for their losses. You can't do it. It's not allowed by the law. So my advice is ask for a ton of money. With confidence. Again, if you're kind of sheepishly going up there and being like, yeah, I made $5 million. Excuse me? $5 million. No. Like $5 million isn't enough to live every day for the rest of your life with this pain or this loss or whatever it is. $5 million is nowhere near enough because sometimes you just give them a little floor. You say, that's not near enough. Or if you have economic loss of a million dollars, you say, look, living with this pain or this loss for the rest of your life is not nearly. I mean, think about how many times more your loss is compared to your to your economic loss. Your non-economic loss is 25 times worse than your economic work. There are lots of little techniques you do it, but most importantly, you've got to say it with confidence and you have to say it at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. And I will say I have heard from judges how much they appreciate when a plaintiff's attorney can get up there in his or her closing and just write a number down and not balk at it or stutter when they say that number. Just write it down and say it with enough confidence to convince the jury that that you're right and no one's going to convince you (laughs) that you're wrong. Erica, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, you don't have to arrive at that number that you may ask for. You know, you may describe the number generally as millions of dollars or five million wouldn't be enough. And that's a way of projecting a number to the jury. If you are putting an actual number down, especially if, you know, you're talking about an eight-figure number, something like that, that's not shooting from the hip. You've lived with this case. You know the gravity of the case. You often have done focus groups and learn what type of numbers jurors are comfortable with based on the gravity of the case. And you can inform that decision, you know, with your trial team and your colleagues about what that number should be and have things to back it up. And that's where some of that confidence comes from. You know, you're sitting there in the back of your mind saying, we polled 50 people from St. Louis County and the average juror verdict was $25 million. So when I asked for 40, I'm not falling over 
not able to spit that out because I know that they're going to compromise down from there. So doing that background work on those really high stakes cases will give you a good guide and ground your thinking about what that number is going to be. Now, we understand that all of our listeners are not asking for $40 million in their trials. And, you know, the first couple cases I tried, you know, were car accident cases that other people didn't want to try or I was defending them and, you know, having to defend against the ask, if you will. And you have to know your case. And I think you have to know the gravity of the case. And if you have a a car accident where somebody broke their leg and it's healed and they're fine and they had a certain amount of economic damages, you may decide whether to use those economic damages or not. You may decide not to if they're you know, not really in proportion to whatever your client went through. Are they a 17-year-old kid who missed out on their star season and weren't recruited for college because they broke their leg? Or are they an 80-year-old woman who was then bedridden because that break was the difference between independence and no independence. So that's really going to drive, I think, what you're asking for. And talk to other people about it. Talk to other lawyers about it. But more importantly, talk to people who are not lawyers, who are more closely have the mindset of your jurors. I love talking to my conservative dad about cases and what he thinks they're worth. It's, it's like my favorite thing to do. Although I've been tapping that well too often because now he's kind of starting to be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you uh, millions of dollars. <laughs> An interesting question one of my clerks recently asked me was regarding caps. And so for those of you who don't know, in Missouri for medical malpractice cases, we are capped on what we can ultimately get for non-economic damages. That's also a cap for wrongful death cases. And so the question that came from my law clerk was – if you are giving your closing and you are presenting your damages, when you get to that non-economic section and you know that regardless of what the jury gives you, the most you're ever going to get is this capped amount, is it worth it to just write the capped amount or are you allowed to tell the jury that this is capped? You cannot tell the jury. The judge will, if necessary, reduce that award later. I ignore the cap. By the time I get to closing argument on a case, even with a cap, I don't give a rip about that cap. I'm going to ask for whatever I think the case is actually worth, hopefully get it, and at least my client, despite the crap law that we have, at least my client recognizes that a jury of her peers fully compensated her for her loss. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Y'all missed the head flip after that because it just don't get me started. Well, I'm glad that's that's what I told the clerk. <laughs> <laughs> no, you ask for as much money as you want to ask. Right. All right, ladies. Well, thank you so much for uh, a great discussion on closing arguments. You can catch new episodes of Heels in the Courtroom every Wednesday. But in the meantime, if you want to join the conversation, if you've got any questions, any stories of your own, please reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And until then, goodbye. Bye. 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 Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.